With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Eric Edwards, a.k.a. Rob Everett. Rob Everett's the real name. Eric Edwards was the gnome de porn, as people put it. Eric Edwards was in a lot of the movies that we covered back in April during our adult film discussion. You'll hear about those titles as well as a few others as Mr. Edwards tells us a little bit more about his life and career. I hope you enjoyed the interview. How did a nice Michigan boy like you end up in a acting program? Where was it? California? I was born in Grand Rapids. My parents moved around a lot because of my father's business. He's a Texan all throughout. A family of like Bonanza, the TV show. There were five brothers in the Everett family and, and uh, they all lived in, in Texas. Not on the Ponderosa, but nearby. And then we moved back up to Indiana, Fort Wayne, in fact, for some odd reason. I was just a babe. In my father's business, he was uh, in the paper box industry, or actually the paper mill industry at that particular time. He would start up a plant, hire all the people, buy the equipment, big factory stuff huge uh, printing presses and, you know, the whole nine yards and it, you know. And in fact, I worked for him for a while as a summer job. I had my own secretary too, which was pretty cool. Nice. <laughs> Eunice. I'll never forget Eunice. Anyway, so we moved around a lot. He would get a factory up and running, and then they would transfer him to another city to start up another one. Pretty soon we were living in the uh, a little town called Demopolis, Alabama. And then we moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama to build a new factory. So I, I went to 13 different schools before I entered college, which was Baylor University in Waco. And I majored in uh, theater. I met all these 
cute girls and everything in the theater department. Actually, that's why I chose theater, because I was walking around the campus of Baylor, and which was a, a Baptist university, you know, very strict Southern Baptist Judge Baylor. The theater department was very kind of set off in a different area from the rest of the campus. We were doing a production of Long Day's Journey into Night there at the theater department. And obviously, Eugene O'Neill had some dirty language in it. One of the uh, Baptist uh, ministers or something brought his family to see this production at our theater. And he was appalled by the fucks and the dams and everything that Eugene O'Neill would use. And they closed us down. They shut down the theater department. All of the actors and the actresses and and even the uh, uh, the dean, uh, whatever he, the professor of uh, theater, Professor Cook, we all got pissed off at that simply because this guy had taken his kids to see a show that had nasty language in it. And uh, so they closed us down for that. Uh, anyway, we, we all rebelled. They had a, a statue of Pippa. Pippa passes, I think it was a, a poem or something. Anyway, they had a, a statue of Pippa, the epitome of goodness on the campus. Here's this beautiful little statue of a girl, just so cute and pretty and everything like that. And this is a brass statue, right? The theater department, we all rebelled. And we all got together and he said, you know what? We're going to glue a bra onto Pippa. <laughs> a real bra. Because it was so innocent looking and everything like that. And, and I said, okay, I'll volunteer. <laughs> and we all got together and we all discussed how we were going to sneak and do this in the middle of the night to put a bra on this uh, bronze statue. And I'll never forget it. I was like, in the bushes and everything like that with the other theater department uh, majors put a bunch of glue in the in the cups of the bra and then rubbed it around on the statue and then ran like hell <laughs> it was great it was such fun such memories i think we reopened the show the theater department talked me into auditioning for a scholarship that ABCD was uh, hosting in Dallas and also various hubs around the country, Nashville and whatever, Los Angeles, whatever. My hub happened to be Dallas, which was only like an hour and a half drive away. So I said, what, you want me to go audition for this scholarship? And they all, the whole department, including Professor Cook, said, yeah, you got to go. And so I did. I drove all the way up to Dallas, did my audition, which actually uh, two scenes. Uh, one had to be a contemporary scene, which also had there had to be one comedic or comedy and also a classical scene. So you have two scenes uh, and they had to be within, I think, four minutes or five minutes or something of that for the audition. I picked uh, a soliloquy from Long Day's Journey into Night, where I think Edmund was talking to his father or something about his experiences. And the other scene was uh, 
from The Taming of the Shrew, Shakespeare as my classical. I just went back to Baylor, went back home, and I, I got a call back to go back up to Dallas and repeat my performance because obviously I had something that the ABC and the American Academy of Dramatic Arts had their people there judging me and everybody else, but they called me back. And so I drove all the way back up to Dallas, and I, I was scared more then than I was the first time because, he's, oh, my God, you know, did I do something right or should I wear the same clothes that I wore last time? Uh, should I do it precisely as best I can to repeat my performance? And so I did all the above. And I got another call back. And after the third call back, I got a beautiful telegram from ABC and the American Academy of Dramatic Arts stating that we want to give you a two-year full scholarship to come to New York and go to the Academy. Changed my whole direction. After two and a half years of studying at Baylor, I decided to take them up on the offer. And I packed my suitcases and I, I took a train. I remember seeing my parents on this wooden platform in a, a small town outside of Waco. <laughs> I think they were the only ones there. It was like a typical movie where you're looking out the window of the train, watching your parents disappear into the background. You know, it, it was like, uh, oh, my God, I'm going off to the Big Apple alone. I was so green. I didn't want to pass up a full two-year scholarship to the academy. So anyway, that changed my life. From that point on, I met my first wife there at the academy. She was a student. She wasn't a scholarship winner that, like myself, so she wasn't invited back for the second year. We would get together. In fact, we actually got an apartment together uh, during my second year. She only lived a, a short distance away in Connecticut with her parents, so it was really easy to stay in touch. She'd come to the city. I'd go to visit her in, in Norwalk, it was, I think, Connecticut. We fell in love. We eventually got married. That was my first wife. Unfortunately, she died of breast cancer uh, years later. But we remained very, very good friends all of our lives. She was a sweetheart. Kathy Christopher was her stage name. I got my diploma handed to me at the graduation ceremonies of the Academy by Helen Hayes, oh, wow. the first lady of the theater. I was so in awe of that. And who would be sitting backstage in the wings? Henry Fonda. I walked up to him. You know, he's just in this little stool kind of chair, you know, because he was about to go on and make a speech to a, the graduating class. I looked across the wings and I could see Helen Hayes speaking. And then sitting in a chair right next to me is Henry Fonda. Oh, <laughs> and I realized the impact that this academy had on the, uh, the whole filming industry and the stage industry. Mm -hmm. So many people went there. Incredible people. Robert Redford was in the, I think the year before me. Oh, you know who is another scholarship winner was Cleavon Little. Oh, wow. He played the black, the black sheriff in Blazing Saddles. Oh, another one was Kathy Burns, who was another scholarship winner. These were good people. 
we actually covered a movie. It might have been one of your first features. Uh, we covered, uh, is there sex after death? The, uh, Abel's doing that. What was that experience like for you? And how did you get involved with that? You know, I'm not exactly certain how both Kathy and I got involved with that. Is there sex after death? But I remember the one memory that I have which is kind of an odd one, is the fact that Alan's wife, I forget her name. I think Jeannie. She was the one who painted my cock. <laughs> it cracked me up here. Uh, you know, I'd never had my, my dick painted by anybody before. And she paints this little face on it and puts a crown on top and all that, like a little king or something, <laughs> cracking me up. It was all I could do to keep from getting a heart on. <laughs> I would have spit the crown across the floor. <laughs> anyway, they were, they were good people. I think that Kathy and I were just two bodies, two naked bodies on a, on a uh, slab faking having sex. But we were naked, so that was my first nudie, so to speak. So had you been doing loops or anything before that? Yes, I started doing loops Ted Snyder was the first one when I was going to the academy and everything. And, and uh, I sent my photos off to a few places that advertised for models. And seeing as how Kathy and I were swingers at that time in New York, I don't know if it was at the academy or after the academy, probably after the academy. I'm losing track of those early, early days. Yeah, we, we didn't get into swinging until afterwards because we weren't really sexually compatible the two of us mm-hmm. but we loved each other so i i sent off my photos to, to this one guy named ted snyder apparently he had a loft on 42nd street or something between 8th and 9th i sent off my photo to this guy and i lived on 8th avenue 888 8th avenue i'll never forget that address and so it was just a, a, a short walk down to uh, that area. I got a call from Ted, and he said, yeah, I got your photo. Do you think that, you know, because I knew it was for nude modeling. And he said, do you think you could get it up? And I said, well, because Kathy and I were swingers, I figured, hey, I had sex in front of groups of people before. So sure, I, I could do it with one camera, one cameraman. And the girl turned out to be Linda Lovelace and a girlfriend of hers. But I didn't know at the time. I didn't know Linda. I don't think too many people did know Linda at that time. Deep Throat was either, no, it hadn't even been released yet. And I met Linda, and I met this cute little redhead, and who was sitting off in the the side of the room was her husband at the time, Chuck Trainer. He apparently had some problems with wood, and so that's why she called me. And so I went over there, and I, I guess I knew her from from the early loops or something. But anyway, it was um, it was an easy job. <clears throat> I got forty bucks. The girl got fifty. <laughs> I always wondered why the girls got ten dollars more than me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like strange. Uh, it worked out fine. And then I would get calls, more calls from Ted to do other loops. And then I would start getting calls from people who Ted knew. So it all kind of snowballed from there. Before I forget, tell me your Deep Throat story. I had a, a, a theatrical job down in Boca Raton, Florida, on a stage production. While I was down there, and I didn't know this at the time, at the same time I was doing a stage production, Deep Throat was being shot 
somewhere down in my area. Uh, you know, I was in Boca Raton, and I don't know where they were, the Fort Lauderdale or something like the shooting. But uh, I didn't know anything about it at all because I was away. I was doing all the summer stock and a lot of theater jobs. That was my main thing, uh, stage. When I got back to New York, I was uh, walking from the train station, I believe, to go to my apartment. And I saw on a marquee, I think it was Show World on 8th Avenue and 42nd Street, somewhere in that neighborhood. I saw on the marquee, Deep Throat. And I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. And there was a line of people going around the block waiting to see this movie. <laughs> and I said, what in the world has happened while I was away doing summer stock? <laughs> the whole world has changed. You know, and, and literally it, it had. Uh, it was the first movie of its kind. And so I, I, I just went up to my apartment and everything. I never saw it at, at that time. But I tell you what I did see down in that area was myself. As I walked by this opened door into a video arcade, where you put quarters in to see loops. I saw a photo of myself, of, of a black and white loop that I had just done not too long ago. And I thought, oh, my God, that's me. <laughs> I quickly gapped, grabbed a, uh, a pocket full of quarters. <laughs> I had to check it out because it wasn't long ago that I had filmed the stupid thing. And as I was looking at it to see what this whole unique uh, thing happened was I noticed that the entire arcade of loop machine people, they would all turned. They were staring at me because my photo was right above the loop machine that I was actually in. <laughs> they recognized me. <laughs> oh my God. So I kind of like grabbed my extra quarters and shuffled out the door, embarrassed. <laughs> I was always very shy about recognition what was that like watching yourself have sex was that the first time you had seen that yes that was the very first time that i saw myself and i was curious as to what the, these loops were i hadn't done any features yet at all in fact i don't even know if i thought about it but i started getting phone calls because the word spread very quickly that i could perform and that was the big thing you had to be able to have reliable wood, as they called it. I had no problem with that. Well, not only did you have reliable wood, but you were also a trained actor, which is more than you can say for a lot of people in the business at that time. Exactly. That alone also got me a lot of work simply because they could hand me a script and they could count on me to know my lines and not only know my lines, but perhaps develop a character. That was like a fun thing for me to do is, is actually create a character. I don't imagine everything was down on the page. I imagine these were very sketchy portraits. I will refer back to one character. I think it was probably one of the first that I actually took the time to develop. Uh, and that was in uh, American Pie. They originally called a piece of American Pie, but it's the adult version of American Pie. Damon Christian, I think, was the uh, director, producer, whatever. Basically, my character, as I read the script, the character was a sleazy uh, 1950s. It was a great film because we had old 1950s cars and everything like that and locations. And 
So I, I liked the script. I liked, but as far as the character goes, I thought to myself, this is a chance to really do something about that character. I have kind of a good guy image. I wanted to change myself into kind of a sleazy New York gangster type with an accent and uh, greased hair, really greasy hair. That was really kind of disgusting for me to do to myself. But anyway, it was fun. But I invented this character of Rudy, the character was. In creating a character, you do a lot of things. You think about where the character was born and brought up. You think about the kind of life that he possibly could have lived. Maybe he's uh, got a twitch or something that, that he does all the time. Like, for example, I think I combed my hair a lot with Rudy, the grease and, and everything. So I, I kept it sharp all the time, you know, mm -hmm. something like that, some characteristic of, of your of your of your character. And that was a fun exercise. I, I enjoyed doing that because it, it put my academy talents to use. You mentioned how Deep Throat really changed the industry. And within just a handful of years, you would be working with Gerard Damiano on Memories Within Miss Aggie. I'm very curious what your experience was with that. Well, that was my first experience with uh, Jerry. I have a favorite of mine that I did with him later on, but he was the first time that anyone actually directed me mm. in an adult film. I said, wow, that's cool. <laughs> you know, he's actually a director. He, he, he talked with me. He, he guided me in, into how to play a virgin, <laughs> for Pete's sake, me playing a virgin, you know, at my age at that time. I don't know. <laughs> it was probably 50. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, I must have been in my uh, mid-30s or something. Do you know the date of that film? I think it came out in 74, so about uh, 48 years ago. I was probably in my early 30s. I don't know. I'd have to do the math. For me to play a virgin at that age was kind of strange. So I talked to him about it. I worked in the shyness and the, well, just everything about the character. He was the first director that actually talked with me. The other ones, like, oh, gosh, Ron Sullivan, one of my favorites, Cecil Howard. These were true directors who actually taught me in my own uh, directing skills. I learned a lot from everybody, those three especially. It's such an unusual sex scene. Well, first off, even the dialogue is so unusual, the way that things are repeated and there's repetition throughout the entire thing to really give it that idea of being a dream or flashbacks that Miss Aggie is having. And then the sex scene that you have with Kim Pope, it's very unusual in that it is really very, very sensuous and just it's more making love than fucking. And there isn't even a cum shot in that. It just it really took me by surprise the first time I watched it. I remember that now. Yeah, there was no cum shot. I'm pretty sure that's what Jerry wanted. So it was like an interior that happens occasionally. Um, somebody else wanted an interior also. And. I thought, oh, really? Okay, fine with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there was Night Hunger. Yeah, Night Hunger was a favorite of mine. And I'm not sure why. Oh, I, I, one of the reasons why is because my scene was done in sepia tone instead of color. And I thought that was very clever of Jerry 
to make it look period-like and took place back in the early 1800s or something to that effect and the costumes and everything. And it was a an enjoyable scene for me. I really liked the classical music that he laid in over it instead of your usual porn music. The whole movie, I think, was uh, quite nice. You did a few movies with um, Radley Metzger. What was that experience like for you? He was another one, another good one. Uh, Private Afternoons of Pamela Man. Remember Bourbon? Yeah. Oh, my God. Gorgeous, gorgeous. And I was too shy to even, even try that. So it was such a California girl and everything. It just beautiful. But, you know, I think I was either married at the time or going through something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so just wasn't meant to be. That was a, uh, an interesting, uh, film for me. And working with, uh, was, with Radley was, was, he was another great director. That's all there is to it. People who knew how to put a production together. The people who got me involved with actually having a storyboard was Cecil and, and uh, Ron Sullivan, Henri Pichard, I, I should say. They all had storyboards, and I didn't know what these things were. Strip boards, I call them, because mm-hmm. they contained all these little strips. And each strip was a particular scene. Who's in the scene? Where the scene takes place? Is it day or night? It had all the info that any director would need to know. And these scenes, these strips were movable all over the board. You could change the schedule any way you wanted to at any given time, which happens a lot, especially in our industry. Right. Whoops. Another film that we are covering of yours this month is Blonde Ambition. Oh, yeah. Of the Amer Brothers. They were cool guys. They spent three years in the making of this movie. Yeah. Uh, so I would get called in another six months or so later on and, you know, to do a little another part of the movie and everything like that. I thought, oh, that's cool. But I never really got into the idea of, of who they were and how they actually put this whole thing together until I read their article. And then I was like, wow, that, that was really amazing. I think that jailhouse scene was, at the, at the end, I think that was probably done, you know, years later. I probably wasn't even blonde then anymore. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. I used to make my hair more blonde than it was at the time. They were like really wonderful guys. Um, I just wish I had better memories of them, but I've worked for so many people. After reading their story, and how they managed to gather bits and pieces of money here and there and everything to try and finish the project. Their heart and soul was in this film. And I just, I wish I had known it at the time. Uh, I might have even said, don't pay me till you can get it or something. You know, I, I would have worked with them. But being a starving actor, <laughs> I probably said, please, I'm right. waiting for my paycheck. You know, no. That was the one, too, with the incredible she's masturbating in the shower. And they have that very like psychedelic sex scene of you and her with that weird camera lens that they're using. Oh, that's right. It was like multiple images or something swirling around. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot all about that. That was, that was wild. tough. I, I never really had to 
do that myself in front of a camera and always have like a, a girl, a fluff girl or something. I might have had a fluff girl on the side. I don't know. Fluff girls were interesting back then. I even had a fluff girl on all of my sets. It didn't pay very much mm -hmm. uh, at, at the time. I think it was only $50 uh, just to hang out on the set, get a free lunch, and have to do an occasional BJ or something to keep the actor up. It wasn't that big of a deal. It was fun, you know, as a as a producer, director, and everything. And like I said, I learned a lot from from the the other guys uh, how to budget out an entire production. And my pre production was spot on, right down to the dime. I had to uh, just break it all down, and that was actually kind of the, the the fun part because the more pre production you do, the easier the shoot goes. It was a lot of fun putting a, a production together, hiring the people, giving all my friends a salary for Pete's sake. That was gratifying as hell. Was there a lot of competition between you and some of the other actors that were working on these films? Because there's only so much that can go around sometimes, it feels like. No, there was no competition. I think I was in a, a plateau all by myself. I, I don't know. You know, they would say, let me get an, an Eric Edwards type. Well, why don't you just get Eric Edwards? Right. He's available. I don't know. It's, it's kind of strange to think about, but uh, I never had any competition that I can actually think of. I don't know, maybe Tom Byron. I was kind of, a, I guess, one of a kind. If you want me or my type, fine. Give me a call. Even today, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll play old man parts. Do you have much memory of working on Little Orphan Dusty Part 2 with Rhonda Joe Petty? I do. My first comment about that movie is why in the world did they not use that beautiful sex scene of the two of us on the deck of the boat in the film instead of uh, over the ending credits? I, I thought, my God, that was a great scene. Why didn't they use it? Anyway, uh, I liked Rhonda Joe. Although she was drunk all the time. We all had our little drug problems, me included. Almost died twice. What was Jacob Jacoby like to work with? Jacob, uh, I don't know. I always called him Jacob because I didn't like the V sound at the end of his name. He was he was pretty good, actually. I, remember, I had good memories of him. One of the other few directors who actually tried to direct, didn't try, did give you a little something to chomp on as a character. But as far as remembering what it was like to work with the director, I'm, I'm not, I, I just know that I was being directed. That was a good thing. I remember sitting by the pool and having my mother come down or something, or was it? I think it was probably Dusty's or Rhonda Joe's mother in that one. Yes, Rhonda Joe's mother. So many memories, it's hard to keep them all filed up here, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But I, I have a, a, a pretty good, a pretty good uh, handle on on all that. Somebody can say to me, "Do you remember that scene from blah blah blah?" And I said, "Oh, you mean with uh, so and so?" Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Plus the fact that it's easy to look up on my log and and find the movie and and who's in it and everything like that. And then it all it just brings back the memories. So many memories. Well, you've mentioned a few times about who was an influence when you became a director. I want to know what was that like becoming a director and what were the circumstances around that? 
I believe in all the right places was my first directorial effort. And I had all of these unusual requests. I had my own image of couples movies and, and how they should be filmed. When I wrote the script of In All the Right Places and other scripts, I always added my wife at the time, Renee Summers, mm-hmm. as a co-writer. She never helped me with scripts at all, <laughs> Zip. The only reason I put her name on the credits was to try and help her get other co-writing or, or writing or directorial assistant director. That's what it was, assistant director work. So that's why I actually added her name to the credits. But she never helped me with my scripts. My scripts were much too involved. But this one, first of all, if I, I've got to tell you this story. And this is why Cruz hated me. <laughs> but they hated slash loved because I gave them some really good challenges. My cameraman, Gaffer, they learned so much because I demanded certain things. The first uh, thing that I shot in all the right places, I had a a bar scene and a nighttime beach scene written at this house location. How am I going to do this? Well, the reason I got the idea was because uh, the, the garage was painted black on the inside. It was a two-car garage, pretty big, and it was painted black for shoots at this house and a lot of people would shoot there occasionally but i noticed that you know that okay hey i can build a bar which i wrote for my first script about a girl driving around town horny as hell she's unsatisfied she's gotta have it and she pulls up to this bar and goes in and picks up these five guys or something like that in, in this bar and then does them on a table on a pool table or something with them all around her. But this is in a fucking garage, normal, with like a 12-foot ceiling or so. But I figured out how to do it. I brought in a ton of sand, a ton, dumped it on the floor of the blackened garage, built a bonfire with a gas jet going under the sand and controlled by a grip on the side, as to how high the flames come up. And I put this couple out on a beach at night with the sound of the sea and the wind blowing in their hair. And it was in a fucking garage. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, bring up the flames just a little bit more now. They're about to climax. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll see the little flickering, you know, come up. And then, and then okay, take out the flame. Uh, remove the sand. We've got to have a bar now, but leave a little sand on the floor because all bars have some sand or something on the floor all, you know, all the time. And I brought in this, this you know, a, a bar with stools and everything. Okay, this is, shows you how stubborn I am as a director. There was a famous shot in um, Apocalypse Now where they shot down from above through a ceiling fan. Right. As the fan blades circle slowly in front of the lens of the camera, and you see Martin Sheen, and you see him on the bread, and he says, I'm still in Vietnam or some Saigon. And he says that line, well, this fan blade sweeps across his face slowly. I wanted that shot in this bar 
when she gets laid down on the table and right. those five guys are around her. Well, what are you going to do? The, the, the gaffer said, you can't do that because the ceiling is not high enough for you to get above the fan, the ceiling fan. I said, okay, well, mount a mirror up there and shoot up into the mirror and it will reflect down on to the table. Wow. And sure enough, the damn thing, the damn thing worked. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. I can't tell you. And then we had to get rid of all the sand, you know, that right. was a bitch, but we took care of it. That seems like the toughest part of the whole shoot, getting rid of a ton of sand. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, the, the, the crew hated slash loved me because I gave them challenges. Uh, another challenge they had was in that same movie, I believe, was my lighting. When Francois and, oh gosh, I forget her name. Anyway, they had a love scene in front of a fireplace in a living room on a bare spin rug or a, a white fluffy thing. I said I wanted to have them backlit. Bring these two Ks around on the other side, put a gel on them and aim them at a double 45. And I said, no, you can't do that. It's video. I said, yes, I can. I'm the director. <laughs> Put those two keys back there and aim them at a double 45 for me so that I get the highlights. A cock is round, for Christ's sake. The bodies are round. I want to see that curvature uh, of the bodies. And by damned if that, that was one of the hottest sex scenes. And I didn't even lay in. I told him this. I was not going to lay in music, typical porn music over mm -hmm. the scene. I was going to put in just the crackles of the fireplace. That's that entire scene for you. Crackling of fireplaces and whispers to each other wow. face to face. You are quite an auteur. I mean, you're shooting these, you're directing, you're writing, you're even making appearances in some of these films, and you're editing. I mean, you are part of all of the production. You know what? I really loved editing the most, I think, simply because I... I don't know. I guess I love pushing all the buttons of the new CMX system and everything like that. And it was just so cool that the shoot is over and it's, it's a total creative process in the editing bay. You can make a film or break a film just by the editing alone. I really enjoyed that. And plus the fact that as an editor, I knew how to shoot better. In my mind, I could see exactly what I needed to have later on in the edit bay. I, I knew how to shoot exactly the way I needed it. I did it all, I guess, and I loved every aspect of it. Wow. If I wasn't so damned old, I'd love to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> what are you up to these days? I just enjoy the mountains. I, I love uh, hiking. The fresh air up here. I'm, I'm not really doing anything uh, creative anymore. I just stay in touch on Facebook. I lost my big toe on my right foot, so uh, that took a year to heal. But now I'm back into hiking and stuff. I imagine that uh, the mountains kept you company during COVID. Oh, they did, yeah. Uh, my little village is up around 5,000 feet or close to it, way above the big cities and everything like that. So uh, we really didn't have any problems up here. We had maybe... 50 to 70 percent people wear masks. I did for a while. I guess it just being isolated, we didn't really have any problems with COVID. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mr. Everett, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Mike, it has been a joy. You've brought back many memories. And I just love doing that.